the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Is apathy poisoning our politics? And then another opportunity to vent in Grinds My Gears. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, happy Thursday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. It is so good to have you with us on a Thursday afternoon. Aubrey, we didn't tempt fate. Uh, we didn't, like, talk about the weather so that it started snowing. I didn't mention a tornado, so a tornado came. Feel like we <laughs> did it. We learned that. our lesson. Thank you lesson. for not mentioning that. Yes, we learned as our you lesson. Know, those of you who woke up on Wednesday to snow and shoveling and this and that, we took blame for that because on Tuesday I made fun of the fact that it hadn't snowed yet uh, in any considerable way, and so now I'm I, I've learned my lesson. I, I understand the power understand, of the show. I was just thinking that you understand the power that you hold. You, you're like uh, you're like Elsa. Like you just mentioned the <laughs> snow, and all of a sudden. <laughs> Wow, you don't know the power you wield. Disney princess power. Be careful, Brian. Be so, very careful. This isn't where I was going to start with you today, but uh, but you just brought it up. You are the mom of three sons. I am. So did you miss the Frozen craze? Or were they young enough that they would still enjoy Frozen even as boys? Because I had two daughters. Yeah. yeah. And so I was immersed in the Frozen craze. Like yeah. it, it landed perfectly for my family. Yeah. I, I, as the only woman in my family, saw Frozen, loved Frozen, watched Frozen and Frozen 2. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, that was about it for us. We weren't, you know, there were no Elsa and Anna dresses. There were no toys in my house. There were no, no one wanted to listen to the soundtrack on repeat. Like, so I did, I enjoyed it as an adult woman, but I missed out on the actual craze. But yeah. you, it sounds like that was your life for a while, huh? Gosh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So if you're if you're struggling with jealousy over that, you're just going to need to let it go. Just <laughs> uh, uh. So a quick frozen story. Okay. That was good. Uh, when Emily, so Emily's my youngest, she's now yes. 13, when she was probably 6, something okay. somewhere in that range. Like she was uh, like she was the target audience for Frozen. Yeah. And so when she's 6, my older daughter Madeline was probably you know, 12. So that's okay. kind of our range. Wow. We went to, to, to Disney World, to Orlando, with my in-laws and my parents. Like, it okay. was like both sides of the family. Okay. And all Emily, like... The only thing she wanted to do was to meet the frozen princesses. Aww. And this is right after it all happened. Like the movie. Like we're talking about the craze. Okay. 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 So what do you, if you're Disney yeah. and you've got this commodity, the frozen princesses. Yes. Where would you put them? You uh, put them at Epcot. Because oh. now people who would never go to Epcot go to, have Epcot. to go to Epcot. Yes, that makes so, sense. And the Norway Pavilion is there, and it's a correct. Norwegian story. Yeah. So we all go to Epcot, 
and I've got my three little kids. Or they're not so little at the time, but Emily's little. She's in her frozen dress, Aww. right? I've got my my parents and my in laws. Like it is <laughs> that is we are going right, man. Uh, we get there first thing in the morning. Like we are there early. Yeah, like yeah. we're there early. But yet, by the time we're there, we get to where we weren't there when it opened, but we're there early. Yeah. When we get to the frozen, you know, probably the Norway place or whatever, right, there's a frozen right. ride. But the big deal is to meet the two princesses. Right. Uh, three and a half hour wait. Are you kidding me? You didn't do it, right? So think about what you would say. Um, to your little daughter. Because too. this is all Emily wanted to do. And she's still the age where she's like, believes Believe. they're the real princesses or whatever oh. else. So Carrie and I are like, what are we going to do? Oh. So uh, here's what we do. My father-in-law, who has never met a stranger in his life, like Carrie tells stories about how he'd be at the gas station talking to the other <laughs> people. Like he's ne- There's never a stranger to my yeah. father-in-law. Yeah. He says, I'll wait. So I think no. my dad waited or one of us waited for like the first half hour. Then my no. father-in-law took over and uh-uh. waited for three hours in the line nope. and loved no, every minute of it. No, He's talking he to the people. No, he did We didn't. come back. We come back. We probably wait the last 20 minutes and we do the frozen ride and meet the princesses and come saves the day. on. Unbelievable. That is a good grandpa right there. But it was, wow. one, of those sto- it was one of those stories where you're like, we can't not go. Like, yeah. It is yeah. You can't this, not go. Not going is not an option. So right, anyway. Right. Wow. How do we get there? Snow. Snow. Frozen. Okay. Yes. Let it go. All of that stuff. Yes. Fantastic. Uh, speaking of fantastic, speaking of uh, whatever we want yes. to call it here. Yes. Uh, Aubrey, your husband made a post about you the other day. Yeah. Congrats to Outreach Magazine for making it 20 years. Oh, but he buried the lead. And huge shout out to Aubrey Sampson for being one of the 20 leaders we are learning from. And then he posted the picture and the article. Aubrey, I, I, I have so many questions. Okay. How, <laughs> how did, were you surprised when Outreach Magazine, yeah. first of all, congratulations. Thank I'm you. probably, Thank you. I'm probably going to have a mocking tone. In yeah. reality, this is a big deal. You Thank deserve you. to be, uh, to be applauded for this. Walk Thank us you. through this though, from, from not knowing to the end mm-hmm. portion here. Well, Outreach Magazine reached out to me last fall, honestly. And said that they were considering me for this. So I knew that this was an option and I had to fill out all these forms, not like to try to prove myself, but just like more information about me. Tell us about your books. Tell us why you do what you do kind of thing. And then I never heard from them again. And so I just honestly uh, forgot, didn't really think any, I don't know. I just thought, well, I don't know what happened with that. And it wasn't, I wasn't going to like follow up. That felt very awkward. <laughs> hey, am know? I still in the top 20? Yeah. <laughs> and then I got this bizarre email last week from like some award 
or two weeks ago from some award company that was like, congratulations, you're the top 20, blah, 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 blah. And, um, yeah, 20 leaders we're learning from. And I was like, what is this? And I believe it or not, I thought that was spam. So I just deleted it. <laughs> and then we get like 10 copies of outreach magazine in the mail, by the way, Beth Moore is on the cover. So that's the, really the headline. Um, but then I was like, Oh, 20 leaders, this must be the thing. And you open it up and there I am the first leader. So that, that was pretty fun. Yeah. Did they rank, did they rank the 20? Like, are you, is there a ranking system here? My, my guess is it's alphabetical order. My name starts with a, but I'm going to say, because I was the first one, I'm the number one. (laughs) You're the number one. Well, Beth Moore is number one. Was this an eight? Was this uh? was it by eight? Like it was top 20 leaders under the age of. X or was well, it top 20 no. female leaders or was this, are you no. like, are you there's, like against everybody here? There's male and female leaders on the list. They're all the, all the ages. I am the oldest. And when they did initially reach out to me, I was like, in case this is a like kind of coming of age leader, don't put me in this category. Like I am not, I am not a young millennial, like do not, or a young Gen Z, like do not put me here. So even that, I think that's part of why I was like, I, you know, I don't know what they're doing with this list, but yeah, it was just 20 leaders we're learning from. And I felt very honored to be, I felt very honored to be, you know, noted in that. And I was a little embarrassed. I had decided not to post about it because it felt very awkward. And then my husband did. And so then I like shared it in my stories. So it's not permanently on my wall, but it was sweet that he posted it. But I was a little mortified, to be honest. If if it were me, I would have had T-shirts made of it for myself. (laughs) I would have been like, look at me. I am top 20. I absolutely would have. There's no doubt about it. So congratulations. Thank let us you. let you quickly clear something up because people who might peruse yeah. Outreach Magazine will see that Aubrey listed a lot of her job titles, but there's an important omission in that <laughs> job list right there. Well, this is what's so funny. So it has my occupation as co-planter of Renewal Church teaching pastor at Renewal Church and then Timberlake, which is a church that I moonlight as a teaching pastor at. Like, I really only go there two or three times a year. So even Kevin was like, what is this? Like, why did they list those as your occupation? And I had given them the common good. And at the end of the article, they mention broadcasting. Like, there's a list, like, through podcasting and broadcasting and writing. But they never mention our broadcast. And so I think they probably... I love outreach. Thank you so much for including me. I'm very very honored. I think they must have just like ripped my bio from something and edited some stuff out. And then I, then I, that's part of why I didn't want to post because I felt embarrassed that the common yeah. good wasn't even on here. But I did list us. I okay. did list. That's the all we needed good. to know. Yeah, yeah. I do have to admit that when I yeah. saw Kevin's post, I went, yeah. huh? Yeah. I, I do. Uh, outreach reached out to me for the top 20 co-host of leaders <laughs> we're listening to. <laughs> And I'm very excited. I'm crossing my fingers that I will be on that list. Uh, In all seriousness, congratulations. Thank you. That is well-deserved, and we are happy for you, and we look forward to the T-shirt. So, Uh, Coming up next, David French, our friend, wrote recently about activism and apathy that are poisoning our American politics. The classic David French. We're going to talk about it in light of the church next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Uh, 
we one of the, our hopes for this show is to help people process the political landscape. How do we as Christians interact politically when that's what we're inundated inundated with, right? Right, like, uh, right. Cable news and talk radio and people, what you're putting on Facebook. And the people are obsessed with politics. They have strong feelings. So how do we interact? And mm. one of the places we will often go is David French. David French, a friend of the show. Um, he's been on many times. But David writes at The New York Times, at the Disp- at other places about uh, all of these subjects and in, in he talks a lot about anger and a lot about yeah. apathy and a lot about what does that look like for us as Christians in the political and non-Christians. But how do we do politics yeah. well? And with that in mind, he did just post on uh, the 1st of January. So this is how he started his new year. <laughs> Activism and apathy are poisoning American politics. We cannot mm-hmm. delegate our political and cultural engagement to the angriest sects of American life. Uh, give us a little feel for because what yeah. he's saying is so important. Yeah, it's actually really interesting, and I haven't heard this before. So take, give me a minute to explain. But he, yeah, please. He's talking about a survey from some of his friends at an organization called More in Common. This is how he began. They attempted to discern the true extent of American divisions in the so-called history war, so battles over teaching our nation's history in public schools. Okay, mm. and what that research showed essentially. I wish I could you could see it on our on our audio uh, medium. But (laughs) essentially, uh, partisans hold deep animosity towards their party opponents. So uh, using words like brainwashed, hateful, racist, arrogant, the percentages of what Democrats think of Republicans and Republicans think about Democrats are high. Like those Mm. words are used in the 80 percent, almost 90 percent. Whereas positive words like reasonable, honest, humble, the highest score is like 12 percent. So you, <laughs> so you see that it looks yes. like we are far apart on issues okay, yes. and on what we think of one another. But here's what's interesting. French says that's actually false. He says there's a remarkable amount of consensus in education on what should be taught, and both Democrats and Republicans grossly overestimate the Mm. other party's extreme views. So basically what he's saying is we are categorizing one another, yes, as brainwashed, hateful, racist, arrogant, (laughs) but when it comes to actual like relationship and conversation, we find that we are not as far apart as we think. So he talks about one of the reasons for this phenomenon. He says, of course, there's no single explanation. One, of course, is social media, the news we consume. All of that highlights the extremism. All of that enlargens the perception gap, okay? But then here's the part that this was new information for me, Brian. Okay. He says this. He's talking about, of course, apathy and activism. So apathy would just be like, okay, you're just going to sit there and let the social media and let the news outlets tell you how evil the other party is. But then he talks about activism as part of poisoning American politics. And this is fascinating. So he says that he was an activist for years. He spent more than a decade in the activist community. He ran a civil liberties nonprofit. He was a senior counsel at two Christian public interest law firms. He raised money. He testified before legislators, legislatures. He litigated in courtrooms across America. 
What he says is, so that's you. You're an advocate. And you see your issue is really, really important. What happens is you begin to be someone who has to raise money. Hmm. And when you have to raise money, the only way that you can begin to raise money is to stand out by using fear, hyperbole. And he says there is so much pressure in the advocacy field to move from a statement like, hey, there are many worthy causes. This is one to statements like protect free speech or our nation will die. (laughs) And he talks about how all of that sort of uh, systemic, uh, you know, problem in the advocacy field is a layer to what's going on in our division. Fascinating. Isn't it? Because the activists can't raise money unless their rhetoric is that intense and extreme. Now, he does say, look, it's not a grift. Like, activists certainly do believe in the thing that they're raising money for and, and being vocal about. But at the end of the day, Activists know what works. Right. And what works is this sort of extreme, intense rhetoric. And that's causing some of the division. Isn't that fascinating, Brian? It's really wild because we feel that, right? You feel. But think about what sells on cable news. It's anger. It's enemy. Rage. I'll never forget years ago. Uh, famously, Rush Limbaugh, who passed away, I don't know, it's going on, I don't know, three, five years ago, whatever yeah, now. Yeah. Rush Limbaugh famously said that it's, he, he really wanted whatever Republican candidate X in the White House, but he said, it's better for my show if the liberal Democrat wins. Why is that? Because now he can spend four years raging. Now he can spend four years poking. Now he can spend four years dismantling and people eat that up like Mm. red meat. Um, Mm. This actually happens at our churches, too. Right. One of the best ways to grow a church is with anger. We've seen that with people. So true. There's something to that. And then to French's point about our politics. There is something. Are you are you aware of the horseshoe effect that is out there that people talk about? That uh, no, unpack it. That that our politics are not a, how we how we live out our politics. So not mm-hmm. what we believe, but how we live them out is not like this straight line where like the far left and the far right are really far uh, from each other. Yeah. The reality is it's like a horseshoe and they're mm. the closest people to each other. Wow. And the rest of us are down there going, I feel like both sides are crazy, not wow. in what we believe, but in how we live out our politics. Yeah, we get this. The far left and the far right deal in anger. They mm-hmm. deal in accusation. They mm-hmm. deal in falsehoods. They deal. Mm-hmm. It's the same playbook. Why? Because it sells. It gets people to watch. It gets, it gets people to read. Yeah. But it tears at the fabric of a culture. And that's what we feel. Those of us who are mostly in the middle going, I don't like the far left or the far right. We yeah. end up going, why, why is this happening? And I think French is right. This anger sells. And then we become apathetic. We're like, whatever. Uh, whatever. I don't, I don't want to have to deal with it. I think the more that... Gosh, I'll call it kind of the, those of us who are sane. The more that we're, more of us are, as David French has described, more like each other, mm-hmm. the more we come to that realization, then I think the more hope we have to see some healing. Yeah. I, it, it, and I think, um, well, I'm just spitballing on what you said. You're right. Just to being aware that this 
even is part of the problem because you know we've we've talked before i think even on yesterday's show about conspiracy theories and we shouldn't get behind them this is not a conspiracy theory but it is one of those things where david french is sort of pulling the curtain back yeah. and going oh okay for healing to happen we need to become self-aware those who are in that activist uh, sphere need to understand the social forces that are filling them with rage. This is something that David French says. And then those of us that are apathetic need to overcome the pressures that keep us disengaged. That's right. David French says, we simply cannot delegate our political and cultural engagement to the angriest wings of American life. They'll drive us apart, even when our differences are not that stark. And that's, I think, sometimes why you and I end up really appreciating David French, because he calls things like they are, and then he's like, here's what we have to do. Let's remember we don't actually hate each other. Like, where can we disagree but move forward with civil uh, civil honor and unity and yes. create a better nation? It's yeah. certainly a call for all of us. It certainly is. What a good David French's stuff, just full of statistics and thoughts. And yeah. mad. It, it all makes sense as you read it. It all makes sense. Coming up next, Aubrey, uh, an encouraging picture from Lifeway Research uh, about the U.S. Hispanic Protestant landscape. Something going on in the U.S. Hispanic Protestant church that we want to highlight here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Uh, people know this. We love the church, but um, yeah. you you speak a lot about, especially about the value of not just the multi ethnic church, but the value of knowing what's going on in other ethnicities, other things going on. Yeah, uh, you know, in we the have church. a we have a multifaceted God, right? Like His glory is multifaceted. Paul talks about, and so I think part of that multifaceted glory is just seeing how God is at work through different different ethnic groups uh, around the world and different uh, places around the world, different expressions of his church around the world. And I think the, the beautiful part about so many immigrants coming to America is that we get to learn from people whose faith is so strong in Jesus and learn like what we don't know. You know, sometimes growing maturity is like knowing what you don't know. And I think when we're exposed to other cultures, people who are following Jesus around the world, we go, oh man, my faith is so much more vibrant now that I've learned from my brother and sister from Latin America or from parts of Asia. And so I think it's so important for those, any, anywhere you're from, you can get very centered in your place, but to remember that our God is a global God and is, uh, beautifully, beautifully imaged himself and people around the world, I think just only increases our faith and our understanding and our humility as well. That's right. And with that in mind, Lifeway Research just put this out, that the U.S. Hispanic Protestant landscape is full of growing, vibrant churches. Hmm. Uh, It says U.S. Protestant and Hispanic churches are finding success in building community within their congregations and reaching those outside their walls. Uh, So Lifeway Research partnered with two dozen denominations and church networks to include what is likely the largest number of Protestant Hispanic congregations in the U.S. ever invited to one study. Wow. Uh, It said this, for decades, the Hispanic population in the U.S. has been growing exponentially, and it's imperative for church is to be informed about the specific needs Mm. of this community. This study will help with that. Uh, And so it says this, get this, Aubrey, 54% of Hispanic Protestant churches have started 
after the year 2000. Wow. Wow. 32% were founded after 2010. Hmm. Fewer than one in 10, only 9% trace their history back prior to 1950s. So these are relatively new congregations we're talking about. Right. And then this, not only are the churches relatively new, but most people in the congregations are also new to the United States. Wow. The majority are first generation Americans, 58%. Uh, almost three in four Hispanic Protestant churchgoers are under the age of 50. Wow. Think about the conversations we have all the time about, you know, how do you reach the young people? And is that in these churches, that seems to be happening. happening. Yeah. In the U.S. Hispanic Protestant churches, the average worship service attendance is 115, like all churches. Yeah. The pandemic has caused some problems. Mm. Um, A a high view of scripture in the 90 percentiles, all of this other stuff. I'll give you some more stats in a second. But what do you just think about? I think the, the, the thing that jumps out to me is how new these churches are, but also you've got first generation people coming to America, uh, coming and living in America and the church is growing. Like there's something cool yeah. and there's something exciting about that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. A lot of the researchers kind of in the missional church movement are writing about how sort of the next wave of evangelism revival is going to come through the Latin American church. And part of that is what we're seeing here. Like as Uh, Hispanic people move into the United States or other parts of the world, like there'll be more of an explosion of of church growth Mm -hmm. and of gospel transformation, gospel proclamation. And so this is just, I think it's just interesting to think about the landscape of the American church changing. What is this going to look like, you know, in the next 20 years? And then I think the, the beautiful sort of dream would be at what point, can our churches begin to be multi-ethnic and learn from one another and partner together? And can a language barrier not exist? And can we learn from each other? I just, I'm very excited about what this could mean for the future of the church in America. What else is interesting as you read the study, and it makes sense. But it's you've got a lot of first generation people, so a lot more first generation Hispanics coming to the country. These Hispanic churches are built highly on evangelism. Wow. It is a it is a huge push in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you know, if you're trying to reach other Hispanic people, yeah. you've got the, all the statistics that say there's all these new people looking for community, looking for whatever. Yeah, uh, and part of the growth that we're seeing here. Uh, is is exactly that. It is yeah. this growth in, um, it's this growth in evangelism, and I think the rest of us churches in America could really be challenged by that. Yeah, I, I was just thinking that, like, we're going to need to probably be like learn from this sort of fire that's coming out of the Latin American church because we've, in many cases, we've grown numb in our own evangelistic efforts here in the you know, American white church. And so I'm not saying that's true across the board, but I do Mm -hmm. think it's often true. And so I I think this sort of new, I wonder if this new energy, I hope we allow this new energy and this new evangelistic uh, push and fervor and excitement really to rub off on us. And again, like learn from, learn from this. You know, it's interesting. Uh, The other thing that Lifeway did in this research was, 
showed what hinders adult Hispanic Protestant churchgoers from participating more regularly in the activities of their congregation. And some of it is similar to other church bodies, and some of it I think is very specific to the U.S. Hispanic population. So long work hours would be one, extended family gathers, gatherings, personal hardships, entertainment pursuits, ongoing fear of COVID, sports activities, prefer to watch online, lack of transportation, school events, caregiver responsibilities. There's some overlap there, and then I think there's some things that are unique to this ethnic group as yeah, well. So, so I, I, at the very least, I think seeing stuff like this helps us be reminded of the different faces of the church right in America. Like it's yeah. one thing to be like, Oh, overseas. But here in America, there are, uh, there, the church just looks different. One more thing that stood out to me here was the churches are younger, but the pastors are, are on average in their fifties. So there's mm. some sort of, uh, they said between the ages of 50 and 64 is the largest number. So there's also wow. something to that. Anyway, wow. a fascinating study. Maybe yeah, other people don't find it fascinating, but you and I were like, this is cool. This, this is, is cool. fun to read. Yeah. So really cool. All right, Aubrey, coming up next, it's time to grind my gears. <gasps> Finally. It's there's some stuff that we got to get we got to get out there. We got to just uh throw out there. This is our chance to vent about the little things in life. Next year on the Common Good, AIM 1160, hope for your life. that you heard really signifies something important here on the show. It means uh, Aubrey and I are going to get to vent a little bit. This is a little <laughs> segment that we call Grinds My Gears. And what it is, is like we know that there are major things going on in the world. There's wars. There's famines. There's pandemic still yes. repercussions. Right, there's, right. These are much, much bigger deals. But, but, Aubrey... Sometimes it's the little things in life that just build up on us that cause us to have to say, yes. oh, if I, don't, if I don't talk about this, if I don't vent this out, if yes. I don't get this out into the ethos, yes. it's going to build up and I'm, I'm going to just kind of explode. It's going to turn into a much bigger thing. Right, right. That is the basis of Grinds My Gears. It's shallow venting. And we, I, they gave us a microphone and so we like to use it. I was listening to a radio show, a sports show the other day, and you want to know what the person vented about? <gasps> yeah. People who bring their dogs to restaurants. <gasps> they stole that from you. They did. They did. I, that is super annoying. People who bring their dogs to, I went to TJ Maxx, and it's a dog-friendly TJ Maxx. And I was like, nope, nope, uh-uh, not going to happen. People who bring their dogs anywhere besides, like, the park, I am, yeah. not, on I am not on board with that. So... Uh, I mentioned one earlier uh, yesterday's show, but because a lot of you don't listen all the time, let me start with one, Aubrey, and that's this. Earlier this week, I bit my cheek, <laughs> and I bit it hard, and then you know what happens? You bite it again, and then you bite it again, and yeah. you start having trouble talking, Yeah, and... I don't know. I've never given birth to a child, but I can't believe it's much worse than biting your cheek because it just starts to hurt so much when you bite your cheek. Is there? I don't know that there's many other things in this world that point to the fallenness and the brokenness of our world and the need of redemption in Christ than the fact that we bite cheeks and, and it continues to happen. Like I do. I think it's a result of the fall. It does crack me up because it's such a sheer. I think I said this too. It's such a sheer 
shared human experience that we forget to talk about. You know what I mean? Like, but it is so annoying because you bite it once and then you bite it a million more times that day and you get that weird metallic flavor in your mouth and like, it is so annoying to bite your cheek. So I'm so sorry. And then you kind of keep touching it like with your tongue. You kind of keep like rolling over it. I feel like I could write a whole article about this. Yes, you should. This needs to be a chapter in your next book. Yes, yes. As one of the 20, as one of the 20 leaders that we should be listening to, I feel like (laughs) you should put that in there. So that's going to be my new ministry is about cheek biting. Yeah, that is right. That is right. All right. Give me one. What do you got? Okay. So this is very specific and niche, but I think it's a shared enough experience that you'll relate and other people will relate as well. So I have to call my pharmacy Walgreens to get, you know, prescriptions refilled. As most of us have a pharmacy, we do that with. For some reason, Walgreens, like, auto response uh, software, whatever it is, is so sensitive that it picks up every sound in the background. So let's say (laughs) I'm on the phone with Walgreens and I say one, two, or whatever, and right then my garage door opens. It will be like, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you and hang up. Or my son walks in and says, hey, mom, it'll be like, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Repeat that. And I get so annoyed with the sensitivity. Like sometimes those things work fine, but sometimes they're so sensitive that if you are not in a silent padded room, you cannot get your prescription. And in general, I am so tired of automatic. I I want a human to answer the phone <laughs> and to help me. I don't want to go through an automatic service automated service anymore. Reach. They are so frustrating. Just it it would it would take me five minutes to get something done that takes like 30 minutes sometimes with an automated thing. and then if it doesn't have it right and then you're like pushing like talk to a person talk to a person press zero and you're getting rageful I don't know I it, specifically Walgreens automated service grinds my gears but in general automated services grinds my gears can I uh, add on top of that <sighs> like yes most places you should just be able to hit a zero and it sends you That's straight it. to somebody. Yeah. So if you don't like to, you don't have to. But just hit I that I hate zero when you call, like, a, yes. like you said, Walgreens, but AT&T is the same way. Ugh. When you call and then you just keep hitting these numbers and they keep, they keep like, well, how can we help you? And it's I'm like, like you an can infinite help me. amount of numbers to push. And then yes. you get so lost. You're like, I think that <laughs> I'm going to have to just get lost in the matrix. Yeah, like I yes, might never, yes, you I start to never, wonder if there's a person in that building. Like there might not be one there might person not be. in that whole There building. might not be one person and they're just going to keep you on the cycle. And then sometimes the machine hangs up on you and you're like, in the, is this, have I been fooled? Is this the grift the whole time? They're just going to keep you busy pushing numbers and then hang up on you. I it also is hate, so frustrating. I, uh, along those lines, I also hate when they give you like the choices Oh, and you're yeah, like, that's the none, none, none of, of those fit. really fit, but that one kind of does. But <sighs> if I go down that path, I might right. end up in a really bad spot. Yes, it is. Yep. It is a terrible experience as a human being. I right. end them all and all automated responses from now on. All right, I have one more, and this okay. one, this one might cause controversy with some Ooh, people out there. Let's hear it. All right, I think we're done with the need for checks. Oh, definitely. 
But the other day, Carrie and I had, an, I had a moment where we realized we were completely out of checks. And you had to write a check. And we had to write a check. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you're a- out there collecting money, mm-hmm. I shouldn't say we're done. There are still people who would like to write a check. Yeah. But there should never in the world that we live in now be only the option to give a check. Yes, and I send agree a with check. that. I agree I, with that. What percentage do you think of people under the age of 50 don't have any checks currently in their house? Um, it's probably higher than we think. It's a big percentage. I, yeah, I, I think checks are going the way of other paper products, right? Like just sort of disappearing. But it is frustrating when every once in a while the bill comes and they will only accept a check. And you're like, a check? Do I yep. have checks? And then you have to order checks from the bank? Yep. That or when you, like- you're like, oh, I, I have to pay this person, but they don't have Zelle and they don't yeah. have this. So I need to write them a check. Yeah. And the only thing I can do. And the, but then if I don't write this check soon, they're going to think I'm stiffing them. But I literally don't. So I Carrie and I were checked. looking. Yeah. Carrie and I were looking for checks the other day. Yeah. Couldn't find any. They're gone. They're, we found some empty books. Right. Right. And so I went online and I ordered a book of checks. It's only like 20 bucks. Yeah. 20 bucks. I feel like you shouldn't have to pay for checks anymore either. But here's the thing. I joked this with with uh, either my wife or one of my kids. The checkbook I just purchased might outlive me. Like, <laughs> you might be right about how that. How many years is it right. going to take for me to write right. 50 checks? This thing, I might get buried. I might get buried with this checkbook. I might <laughs> hand it to my children. As I'm on my deathbed and go, please finish this checkbook. This is my legacy. You must finish it. This is my unfinished business. That was literally my thought as I was ordering checks going. That's that's funny. I want to know the day that will be written on the last check of that that checkbook. What is that day? Yeah. Uh, If you told me it was after the year 2030, I might believe you. (laughs) I might go, there's a chance that that's the case. Yeah, you might be right about that. You've got that checkbook that long. Because even we used to write checks for babysitters. We don't have babysitters anymore. And now everyone's taking Zelle. Or or Venmo. Venmo. Yeah, exactly. uh, Or you could pay with a credit card, whatever else it might be. I mean, I even, like, this is kind of personal. But after my best friend Jen died, I got a tattoo in her honor. And the I couldn't, he wouldn't even take a like Visa card. His was Venmo only. And so I also think, like, I wonder if cards are going the way of the, of the past, too. You know, we had a we had a plumber come to our house just before Christmas. And I was like, do and I asked him because all of a sudden in my mind, I'm like, oh, oh shoot, do pay- I don't yeah. have checks. I don't have them. And I was like. Do you need a check? And he was like, oh, no, just Venmo. Like, oh, we can do it right here. And my <laughs> wife did it, and it immediately showed up on his phone. And we nice. knew, or it might have been Zell. Nice. And it, he, we yeah. immediately paid him. And yeah, yeah. checks. Checks. Like, what? Yep. Like there's going to come a day where our kids, it's going to be like the rotary phone where our yes. kids are like, what are those? Like, what, what is, is that? Yeah. Like, if you totally. ask your kids, like, hey, do you know how to fill out a check? They're, they Not absolutely don't. Years. My kids, I mean, I just had to teach my oldest son, who's 16, how to write a letter the other day and, like, <laughs> put it in, like, do the envelope. And he, like, put the address where, I'm like, no, bro, you got to put the address here. And then the return, it, like, that was foreign to him. So, I mean, it is, times are changing. It's very fascinating. That's funny. Okay, that felt yeah. good. Now when my checkbook yeah. comes, I'll feel good. <laughs> well, Brian and I will be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian from I'm Aubrey Samson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.